Welcome to the Michigan Publishing Podcast, where we engage with the people and ideas that enable us to support the broadest possible access to scholarship and drive our leadership in academic publishing. I'm Elizabeth Demers, the Editorial Director and Senior Acquiring Editor in Political Science for the University of Michigan Press, as well as the host for this episode. This is the fourth and final episode of our four-part mini-series, Dialogues in Democracy, In Conversation. Through this series, we explore some of the core tensions in American political culture, tensions that erupt every four years during the presidential election. Each episode features a pair of authors from the press's political science list who bring different perspectives to the table on U.S. issues of national concern. To round off our series, I couldn't think of a better topic to examine than the figures at the very top of our political system. There is so much discussion and analysis about how presidential candidates and eventual presidents present themselves to the public, both domestically and overseas. So on today's episode, we will examine leadership in democracy. I'm here with Emil Lester and Richard Waterman, both of whom have written books on American political leadership. Emil Lester is Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at the University of Mary Washington. His book, Liberalism and Leadership, The Irony of Arthur Schlesinger Jr., examines Schlesinger's famous histories of the Roosevelt and Kennedy presidencies and our erroneous interpretation of this historian's work. Richard Waterman is professor of political science at the University of Kentucky and co-author with Carol L. Silva and Hank Jenkins Smith of The Presidential Expectations Gap, Public Attitudes Concerning the Presidency. The book asserts that for decades, public expectations of U.S. presidents have become increasingly excessive and unreasonable. Using data from five original surveys, the authors confirm that the expectations gap is manifest in public opinion. Emil and Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to have you. Glad to be here. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, I really enjoyed reading both of these books together because they both look at what the expectations for presidents are. Uh, but from different perspectives. One is the uh, American voter and the other is sort of a scholarly um, reconsideration and a consideration of that consideration, um, which is a little bit meta, but it's fascinating. So I wanted to ask you both to tell us about the inspiration behind these books and the key ideas that drove your research. And Richard, if you could go first. Yeah, this was a project that uh, I actually became interested in when I was writing my dissertation. I noticed that in a lot of the material that I was reading, people were talking about the presidency in relationship to what the public expects from the president, that the public expects contradictory and unrealistic things. Presidents try to satisfy public expectations. They fail in that endeavor. The end result is that presidents, almost all of them, fail in their attempts to deal with the things that the public wants. And that results in lower approval ratings and uh, a lower chance of getting reelected. And as I saw it in book after book, whether it was in some were in history books, some were in political science, I came to realize that this was a topic that people had talked about for years, but nobody had ever investigated using data. And that became a project that uh, Carol Silva and Hank Jenkins-Smith, we were all at the University of New Mexico at the time, and they ran an institute for public policy there. And so we were able to actually do four 
uh, surveys through their institute. And we did another one later when they were at the Bush School at uh, Texas A&M, and then put it all together so that we were able to reflect on this vast literature, which, by the way, um, Schlesinger talks about as well in his extended 2004 edition of the um, Imperial Presidency. Thank you. Emil, what was the inspiration for you for writing this book? Sure. Thank you. So Arthur Schlesinger Jr. is a type of public intellectual who I think simply does not exist today. On the one hand, he was the most important and influential presidential history, arguably, of the 20th century with books like The Age of Roosevelt and his account of the Kennedy administration, A Thousand Days. He was an influential political thinker with books like The Vital Center of the Politics of Hope. And at the same time, he also served as an advisor to John F. Kennedy. He was a co-founder of the Democratic Activist Organization, Americans for Democratic Action. And so he brought together intellectual thought with practical experience. And I think what's fascinating is how he used this mixture of his intellectual background and practical experience and brought it to bear on an understanding of what is a successful democratic presidency. This is an issue on which many pundits opine. And I think there are, are some academics who have dabbled in this issue, but not investigated systematically. Schlesinger investigates this issue systematically. And the final inspiration was that the more that I read Schlesinger, the more I realized that what people think they know about Schlesinger is simply wrong. He is seen as celebrating FDR and JFK as heroic liberals who represent a type of bold and aggressive liberalism. And I think the account that Schlesinger gives of liberalism is much more nuanced. What he prefers is a type of cautious, I call it ironic liberalism, which according to Schlesinger involves reasonable responsibility about politics and a moderate pessimism about man. It's a liberalism which stresses the limits of politics. And I think this is a helpful corrective to not only liberal understandings of the presidency today, but a helpful corrective to our understanding of liberalism as well. Thank you. And your book, Liberalism and Leadership, argues that past presidents such as specifically FDR and JFK weren't necessarily these bold progressive leaders that the popular narrative wants them to be. And so my question is, how often and in what ways can the public's view of the president be divorced from the actual individual? Does this happen while they're in office or after they leave the White House? Sure. It's a great question. I think this is especially a problem for Democratic presidents. And this overlaps, I think, with Richard's book, because liberal voters and activists have outsized expectations of presidential performance. Now, to be clear, Democratic presidents themselves often cause themselves problems. So Obama, I think, for instance, campaigned as a transformational president, but he often governed quite cautiously. If you look, for instance, and Schlesinger discusses this about at JFK's response to the Cuban Missile Crisis, for instance, Schlesinger's account suggests that JFK's instincts were dovish, but he wanted to be perceived as standing up to the Soviets. So he took a tougher line. So one of the challenges for liberal presidents is to govern as careful liberals. But at the same time, Schlesinger understood that it was difficult to represent oneself in public as a careful liberal. And the final point is that there's, of course, another dimension 
with JFK, which is that he was assassinated before his presidency could come to a natural conclusion. And I think this created a pressure on future historians and Schlesinger as well to overemphasize the accomplishments of JFK. And I think this is something that Schlesinger succumbs to. And there's actually a dissonance between how Schlesinger describes JFK's accomplishments while he's alive and represents him as a cautious liberal president and afterwards when he represents him more as a bold agent of change. And Richard, I know these outsized expectations are, you know, really central to your book. So how would you answer this question? How can the public's view of the president be divorced from the actual individual? I don't think it is because presidents create an image of themselves. And that image is something that uh, helps to elevate them into the office in the first place. In the case of Jimmy Carter, it was an image that he was a peanut farmer, a nuclear scientist, an average kind of guy. He wasn't James Earl Carter Jr. He was Jimmy. And then when he became president of the United States, people looked at him and said, we don't want a Jimmy in the White House who wears blue jeans. We want someone who is skilled and professional and knows the job and is presidential. And we see the same thing with a lot of people in terms of their view of Donald Trump. His image right now is tarnished. And yet this is pretty much the same image that got him into the White House. It's an image of him as blustery, He's going to speak truth to power. He's not going to do what everybody else as a politician would do. He's an unpolitician. But these kinds of expectations are carried over because people talk about them in their campaigns. They campaign on these ideas. They campaign on these images. And then when once they get into office, the image oftentimes conflicts with the office itself. What's interesting about Carter is a recent poll that came out about a week or so ago said that uh, Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter are two of the three most respected men in America right now. So in his post-presidency years, his reputation has increased and improved. I think that's because we begin to forget the expectations that we had, and we begin to look at these as individuals, as people, And it's not uncommon for someone after they leave office for them to have much higher approval ratings than they did when they were president. Uh, For example, George W. Bush left office with dismal approval ratings down in the 20% range. His approval ratings now are over 50%. And that may not be great in comparison to uh, where he would like to be, but it means that a lot of people who were dissatisfied with his job performance now see positive attributes of him as a human being and as a former president. And I think the fact that Donald Trump is so controversial, that helps a lot of these ex-presidents because people look back at them with kind of nostalgia and a fondness that makes them elevated in the eyes of people today, whereas at the time they had to deal with all of the problems of the real world. I think that's certainly true for Richard Nixon as well. I mean, I remember when he passed away, Uh, The news was full of his stature as a great statesman, uh, more so than his involvement in Watergate and resignation. Yeah. And in the case of Nixon, uh, a man goes 
out of office in disgrace. His approval ratings were uh, approximately a quarter of the country, a little bit less than a quarter of the country actually approved of his performance at that time, which is kind of remarkable. And he really worked hard at, at his post-presidency image. He wrote a whole series of books. He tried to present himself as a statesman. And there is no doubt that uh, you can reinvent yourself. You can reinvent your image. And I think Richard Nixon is a perfect case of someone who, who not only reinvented his image, but had a clear plan to do so and followed through on it. So you mentioned the difference between how a candidate presents themselves and that persona and then the reality, the expectations for that person once they reach the office of president. But do our expectations for our leaders also play a role in shaping their actions while they're in office? Yeah. And part of the problem is that when you're campaigning, when you're when you're running for president, you have to try to find the issues that people really care about. It's, it's easy to do right now because we're in a, a pandemic with an economic catastrophe. But when you're looking at uh, a lot of other presidents who don't have the issues defined quite as clearly as that, uh, they may stand up for things like law and order, or, uh, as Nixon did and as Trump is doing now. They may stand up for uh, other issues such as uh, fighting terrorism. And the problem is that once a president gets into the Oval Office, they oftentimes don't have the power that the American people think they do to deal with a lot of these issues. And so the end result is that they've promised a great deal during the campaign. They've built up an image of themselves as somebody who's the only person that can deal with these problems. They get into the White House. They find out that working with Congress is not as easy as they thought it was going to be. They find that they can't control the economy the way they said they would. They find that they can't deal with the international environment because it's not predictable. And the end result is that they find themselves in a vice between what they campaigned on and what they actually can do. Emil, you talk about this as well when you're discussing Schlesinger's analysis of Roosevelt and his uh, actions in the first 100 days or the first New Deal, as well as uh, the contrast between the second New Deal. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Sure. The, the story I think that Schlesinger tells about FDR is contrary to the story that is usually told about FDR. The story that's usually told about FDR, for instance, um, concerns particularly his illness and that his illness um, convinces him to become a more compassionate and more ambitious liberal over time. What the story that Schlesinger tells is that at the beginning of Roosevelt's first term, he is incredibly ambitious. So he has these initiatives such as the National Recovery Administration and the Tennessee Valley Authority. And this is probably the closest that the country has come to socialism. Um, and, and these are really broad initiatives. So for instance, he appoints a Tennessee Valley Authority administrator, Arthur Morgan, who has what I think we would recognize today as this insane goal of trying to wean residents of the valley from away from alcohol and tobacco, uh, to give you a sense of how expansive this notion was. And what he gradually realizes over the course of his first administration is how difficult it is to actually execute those policies effectively. 
So what he does in the latter first half of his first term is he adopts a different strategy where he engages in bold rhetoric about inequality, but the policy that he follows is actually less ambitious. And Schlesinger explores this contrast, and I think this contrast is, is an issue that we are still living with today, some of the consequences. Thinking about Franklin Roosevelt in particular, both of your books talk about an idealized president that later presidents then have to look up to, or the public has expectations that later presidents will be like these idealized presidents. And Roosevelt is certainly that person on the liberal side. Emil, could you talk a little bit about these ideal qualities of a presidential figure and how difficult it is to become a new Roosevelt? Sure. I think that there is this myth that has grown up um, around Roosevelt in particular, but also about Kennedy and a sort of golden age of liberalism that exists you know, during the times that they reign over. And I think that this continues to haunt subsequent democratic presidents. And the characteristics which are associated with this golden age of liberalism are a belief in the importance of pursuing bold initiatives and engaging in bold speech. And when you're measured against the mythical versions of FDR and JFK, it becomes all but impossible for subsequent democratic presidents to be successful. And so I think hopefully one of the contributions of my book is, is to help enable readers to understand that the greatest chronicler of this golden age of liberalism actually sought to puncture that myth. One of Schlesinger's goals was to cut the presidency down to size. There's a 1994 panel at the American Political Science Association where Schlesinger reminds his audience of presidents, quote, blunder on like mortals from day to day. And I think perhaps if we realize that JFK and FDR were gradualists who respected consensus, who changed their policies in accordance with the circumstances that they faced, this will enable us to get a more realistic and more fair assessment of other Democrats. For instance, it seems to me that Barack Obama is generally underappreciated. He accomplishes a good deal, but when measured against this mythical yardstick of what FDR and JFK accomplished, he comes up as a failure. Likewise, I think we would have a better understanding, uh, if, if we do have a better understanding of the history of great Democratic presidents, then we won't weigh Joe Biden down with excessive expectations that possibly set him up for failure. Richard, you talk about this in your book um, extensively as well, um, on both sides, liberal and conservative. One of the issues that you really spend a lot of time on in your book is that of Bill Clinton's popularity and contrasting him with these earlier uh, liberal presidents, um, but also thinking about him in general. And I wonder if you could talk about how presidents um, on either side of the aisle can live up to this ideal and a little more about the Clinton presidency in particular. Yeah, I think... There is no way to live up to the ideal. Once you become president, you're compared to something that isn't real. In the case of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, every president lives in the shadow of Franklin Roosevelt, as Fred Greenstein said. And the reality is that Roosevelt had his own faults, but we forget those. We forget Kennedy's faults. Uh, Barack Obama, I think, is going to look better in history than he did during his time, because historians will have a perspective, they'll be able to look at him and not evaluate him on the basis of really un unrealistic expectations. 
when it comes to, to Bill Clinton, Clinton was essentially the, uh, the, the quintessential politician. Uh, he understood how a politician operates as, as opposed to how a president operates. He had to learn that. Um, he was incredibly effective at being able to connect with people. That is a skill that a lot of politicians simply do not have. They're, they may be brilliant. They may have the skill set to be a wonderful president, but they don't have that skill set to be a really good politician. I think the difference there was comparing him to his wife, Hillary. Hillary just did not have the same skill set that, that Bill Clinton had when it came to how do I present an issue? How do I come across to people? How do I make that connection? He was really good at making that connection. And the interesting thing about Bill Clinton is that he really did very well in regard to public expectations, much better than we had thought he would do. And I think it largely had to do with the fact that he was so attentive to every aspect of this personality that uh, uh, he used to connect to the American people. On the other side of the aisle, who would be the idealized Republican president in the 20th century? Would it be Ronald Reagan? Reagan is a president that has been idealized. Um, there certainly are questions about uh, things like what kind of long-term debt did he create? Uh, what kind of inequalities did he create? Because we can see the, the vast gap uh, in income beginning in his administration. And today we have vast inequalities. So historians, I think, are going to be a little bit more critical of Reagan than he was in his time. The, the advantage that Reagan had, again, was that he was able to connect with the American people. There are certain presidents that have that ability. FDR was able to do that, obviously. Reagan was able to do that. Kennedy was able to do that. And these are folks that can use technology effectively. They know how to use, in FDR's case, the radio. In the case of Kennedy and, and Reagan, it was television. And in the case of Donald Trump, it's Twitter. He's able to use uh, these technologies to reach out and communicate directly. And that is something that other presidents simply can't do. George H.W. Bush had all sorts of experience, but when it came to actually making a connection with the people, he wasn't really good at it. George W. Uh, was able to do it for a while because of the terrorist attacks on, on 9-1-1. But as his presidency went on, uh, he seemed to be out of touch with what people wanted. And so it's a, it's a real balancing act between being a politician and being a president. Uh, we, we think of the two as being the same. I look at the two as being two different things. One of the things you discuss in your book, Richard, is that the expectation gap for incumbents becomes even higher. Do you think that would be true for a Trump presidency? And how has that been true for incumbent presidents in the past? I think it's true for all presidents. Uh, the public simply has contradictory expectations. For example, most people want a balanced budget. But on the other hand, we want to spend a lot of money on programs. We want to create uh, jobs. We want, uh, you know, $2 trillion on infrastructure. We want money for a Green New Deal. We want money 
to deal with the coronavirus. We want to spend, 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 but at the same time, we want to cut taxes. And, you know, the, the, the reality is all presidents have to deal with this contradiction. Some have tried to deal with it by just being honest with the American people and telling them you can't have everything you want. That doesn't seem to work very well. The American people, uh, you know, these are expectations that, that transcend any individual president. And so each president faces the expectations gap. Their ability to deal with it really is oftentimes out of their control. When Reagan ran for re-election in 1984, he had an economy that was growing. When George H.W. Bush ran for re-election, he had an economy that was in recession. When Bill Clinton ran for re-election, he had an economy that was booming. And these are factors that people look to and they say, well, gee, you know, the economy is good. We're, we're not at war with other nations. Uh, the State of the Union seems to be pretty sound. I'm going to give the president credit for that. And the president gets credit whether they did anything or not. But, you know, the expectations are always going to be the same. People want a sound economy and they want peace and prosperity. And Emil, the two presidents that Arthur Schlesinger is writing about here, Kennedy and Roosevelt, have really different incumbent experiences, obviously. I mean, Roosevelt is the ultimate incumbent. He had four terms. And Kennedy was assassinated before he had a chance to run for re-election. What kinds of expectations did Roosevelt have to deal with as he successively um, ran for president? And how might Kennedy have been able to overcome this expectation gap? Well, I, I think, again, that Roosevelt faced different difficulties related to the different times that he ran for president. One of the lessons that Schlesinger emphasizes is the growing patience on the part of Roosevelt and the way that Roosevelt expressed this patient. So Schlesinger sees FDR, um, and to go back to the struggle of his illness, Schlesinger writes of FDR that he knew from hard experience that a person could not regain health in a day or a year, and he had no reason to suppose that a nation would mend any more quickly. And so this is one of the crucial lessons that Roosevelt learned over his first term is that these ambitious plans he has for the economy are not going to go through, and he has to navigate around those um, throughout the rest of his first term and in his subsequent terms as well. Kennedy, I think, according to Schlesinger, would have faced a difficulty because there were increasing expectations, particularly on civil rights. And so Schlesinger provides a complicated understanding and a nuanced understanding of, of Kennedy's position on civil rights. Sometimes he says that Kennedy demonstrates an understanding that a president needs to wait for a moment of change. But there are also times when Schlesinger says in his account in A Thousand Days that Kennedy demonstrates a deficient moral energy when it comes to civil rights. And Kennedy's strategy of waiting for the right moment of change, of course, is a risky strategy because it was certainly helpful and in some sense fortunate when a villain such as an obvious villain such as Bull Connor came along in Birmingham, which helped to mobilize public opinion in support of civil rights around the nation. 
But of course, Schlesinger leaves this disturbing question dangling. What if such an obvious villain had not emerged? Um, would Kennedy have proved the match for his moment on the issue of civil rights? And I think that Schlesinger's answer is he's not completely sure. That's interesting. And crisis is one of those uh, issues that really define a presidency. And some presidents like Roosevelt are elected, and Obama, I would say, are elected um, in the middle of a crisis and then have to deal with it. And some presidents like George W. Bush have crisis thrust upon them, um, as with 9-11. We're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic right now, um, which certainly um, some people probably saw coming and very few others did. But how has this coronavirus pandemic impacted notions of leadership in the U.S.? And Richard, I wonder if you could start. The, uh, I think the answer is results. Um, it's the same thing as with the economy or with anything else. People want results and they want positive results. Uh, in this case, what I mean by positive results is they want to have uh, a strong economy and they want the coronavirus to be under control so that they can go back to a normal lifestyle. What we're seeing is a president who doesn't really have a plan to deal with coronavirus. And one of Donald Trump's strengths was supposed to be that uh, he was this super genius, a very stable genius, who could uh, handle all of these sorts of issues and problems. And as the uh, numbers of people who are infected increases, as the death toll uh, increases, and as the months go by and people are still afraid to go to the grocery store, they're still afraid to go to the doctor because they're afraid if they go there, they could actually become infected. So they're staying at home even though they might be ill. These are things that people begin to feel, well, why is it the president isn't doing something about this? Why is it that the president isn't showing leadership here? Presidents are expected to lead. And in this case, Donald Trump basically said, I'm gonna let the states do the leadership role. and that may be a good political strategy. It could have been if uh, things had worked out better, but it's not a good strategy in terms of people looking to the White House, which is where most people look. And when they look to the White House and they see now a hot spot instead of an Oval Office, when they look to the White House and they see a president who seems to be angry and, and in some cases totally out of touch, when they see a president who actually now has coronavirus, the, the end result is that they lose confidence in that person. And what we've seen, we're still uh, three weeks or so away from the election, but what we've seen is that the polls are shifting radically away from the president, both in uh, the national polls and in the battleground polls. There's still plenty of time for him to come back, but it comes down to results. And, you know, when you look at somebody like FDR, people say, well, you know, he was... The, the person that saved us in terms of the depression. He was the person that saved us in terms of uh, the war effort. When you look at Kennedy and he had the Cuban Missile Crisis, he saved us. These are folks that people look to and they say, well, they did remarkable things. And right now the remarkable thing would be to, to find ways of mitigating the fear in this country rather than promoting fear, which I think is what the president's doing. 
Emil, I wanted to ask you, speaking of um, the Cuban Missile Crisis in the Bay of Pigs, how Schlesinger's analysis of, of Kennedy's reactions to both of these issues could compare with the coronavirus pandemic in some ways and our expectations for how leaders are going to lead and maybe how they stumble a little. Sure. Well, I think the pandemic reinforces a lesson about leadership that most Americans are realizing and that Schlesinger really emphasizes that what matters most about presidents is not their ideas, but their temperaments. In the book, I talk about the importance of virtues as opposed to values. As the COVID pandemic reminds us, 9-11, terrorist attacks remind us, the specific challenges that presidents will meet over their first term are generally not known in advance. So what's really important to know about a president is not what their plans are on this or that issue, but do they have the correct disposition to handle crises effectively? Are they going to consult experts and gather diverse opinions and have maturity and wisdom derived from experience in government? Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said about FDR that he had a second-class intellect, but he had a first-class temperament. And I think that Schlesinger would strongly agree that this is what made FDR a great president. It's also what enabled Kennedy to successfully handle the Cuban Missile Crisis is that he was able to um, effectively consult experts and gather diverse opinions. And he had the maturity and wisdom which was derived from his experience in government. So I, I think that what Schlesinger would emphasize that voters, liberal voters and democratic voters in the democratic primaries and general election voters should be looking for is not so much the particular plans that a president has but what sort of dispositions they bring to the office. I think to reinforce what Richard said, Schlesinger would certainly have seen Trump as lacking those dispositions and virtues during his campaign as he entered office. He has not developed those virtues and the American people may punish him for that at the polls next month. And you both in your books identify what it is that that the public is looking for in a president. What historians feel that ideal presidents have as qualities. And Emil, you've really anticipated my final question, which is if you had to pick one takeaway from your book that American citizens should keep in mind as they vote in the 2020 presidential election, what would it be? And I think you've started to answer it. I'd like to hear a little more. Sure. Well, I'd like to talk about something that I haven't talked about yet, which is that ever since Woodrow Wilson, progressive leaders have been burdened with the expectation that speech alone could change the course of public opinion. One of the things that Schlesinger stresses, and one of the ways he cuts the presidency down to, to size, is he really emphasizes how master orders like JFK were very doubtful about the effects that speech could have in mobilizing towards bold action. So Schlesinger quotes JFK saying that he is doubtful that wards, however winged, would by themselves change the world. Schlesinger in his work similarly downplays the role of FDR's fireside chats. And he thinks that this has been, the, the, their effect has been exaggerated by subsequent scholars. Again, in this 1994 American Political Science Association panel, Schlesinger says, the presidential discourse is often composed in haste. It's generally composed by other hands and it's tailored for particular occasions. Instead, 
Schlesinger sees a liberal president speaking role not as advancing bold measures, but about educating the public to recognize the limits of politics. And this is something that was very clear in Kennedy's attitude and speeches, especially toward the end of his first term or the end of his presidency regarding the Cold War. One of the things that he would remind uh, the American people, both on and voters on both the left and the right, is that there's no silver bullet. There's no total solution when it comes to the Cold War and the battle with the Soviets, that solutions are gradual, they're piecemeal, and that they take time. And so I think that this is a really important reminder for evaluating um, Joe Biden's presidency going forward, as well as an important reminder to Joe Biden himself if he does become does indeed become president. It's a reminder that change takes time and that the role of liberal presidents is not so much through their speech to advance bold measures, but rather to educate the American public about the limits of politics. Thank you. And Richard, in your book, you and we're talking about the presidency primarily here, and you talk about the presidential expectations gap, but you also talk a little bit about the expectation gap for Congress. And I wonder if you had to pick one takeaway from your book that American citizens should keep in mind as they vote in the 2020 presidential election, what would it be? I wanted to first comment on what Emil just said, because I agree with it, that presidents often face a world that they didn't expect and they didn't campaign on. Uh, Barack Obama didn't expect to be dealing with an economic collapse. Uh, George W. Bush didn't expect that there was going to be, he was going to be the education president. He didn't expect that there was going to be a war on terror. And I, I am absolutely certain that Donald Trump never anticipated a coronavirus. So we should be looking for skill sets and abilities that go beyond just simply the promises that presidents make. Uh, when it comes to Congress, uh, Congress has become this institution that almost nobody seems to like anymore. Uh, it has become divisive. It has become an arena of conflict. And the relationship between presidents, even of their own party and Congress, has become strained over time. I think the takeaway is that we really need to do uh, push a reset button. We've become a very divided country. We've become a very angry country. And no president, no Congress is going to be able to handle the problems that we have until the American people begin to come together again. So when it comes to Joe Biden's presidency, I agree that he has to do things incrementally. There's no way that you can handle these problems overnight. One of the incremental things that he has to do is to find a way of bringing people together, some sort of reconciliation, some way of making it so that Democrats and Republicans don't see each other as enemies anymore, uh, that people can work across the aisle. They can actually have the same interests even if they don't have the exact same policies. And so we're facing a, a, a very scary world going forward. And I think the American people have to be a little bit more realistic in what they expect because change is not going to occur overnight. The virus is not going to disappear the day after Joe Biden becomes president if he is elected next year. Thank you both so much. What a terrific discussion. I hope Joe Biden listens to this. I hope that uh, Donald Trump listens to this. And I hope that we have some terrific 
conversations in the future about what the presidency entails. Emil and Richard, it's just been a pleasure. Thank you so much for Liberalism and leadership Thank and the you. presidential Thank expectations gap can be purchased at press.umich.edu and are also available through the University of Michigan Press ebook collection. For other titles in the Dialogues and Democracy collection, and to learn more about Michigan publishing, please visit publishing.umich.edu. And thank you for tuning in to the Dialogues in Democracy in Conversation miniseries for conversations about topics in American politics. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Michigan Publishing Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss a show. You can also follow the University of Michigan Press on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn for posts about episodes and other relevant content about our work. This podcast was written by Jillian Graham and produced by Teresa Schmidt with the support of Michigan Publishing at the University of Michigan.